0: Good morning, so over the last few days we've been exploring the first and the second establishments of mindfulness, which are mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of feeling tone or Vedana. This morning I'd like to continue our tour of the Satipatthana Sutta by moving on to the third establishment of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the mind itself. And in the sequence of how these four establishments of mindfulness are laid out, as I've been emphasizing, we start with experiences that are fairly straightforward and tangible and concrete, such as the body and physical sensations. Then with Vedana or feeling tone, our mindfulness starts to get a bit more refined. So we're recognizing just that basic hit of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And the experience of Vedana is interesting because it's not purely physical and it's not purely mental. It's, uh, it has aspects of both. So it's a kind of a bridge between the first foundation, mindfulness of the body, and the third foundation, mindfulness of the mind. And as I've been emphasizing, Vedana plays a very significant role in influencing most, maybe even all, of our mental activity. And that in turn affects how we speak, how we act, how we are in the world, and even who we take ourselves to be. So this morning I want to begin exploring the third establishment of mindfulness mindfulness of the mind, in a bit more detail. So we start to open up with this uh, field, to open up the field of our awareness to look very directly at the contents of our mind, at our mental activity, to begin to pay attention very directly to our thoughts, to our emotions, to our moods, to our mind states all aspects of mental activity. So I'm breaking it down into slightly different categories. Thoughts, just basically any kind of mental process. So for some people, they're, uh, they're more verbally oriented. So thoughts tend to come as sort of words in the mind, a sort of inner dialogue. At other times, thoughts appear as uh, visual images. Some of you have mentioned uh, visual seeing, mental images. Sometimes we can hear music or other types of sounds, voices. So thoughts is just all kinds of uh, mental activity generally. And then emotions also have a bodily and a mental component. So, for example, if we feel anxiety, we might recognize it as uh, rushing thoughts in the mind, sort of panicky, jittery thoughts in the mind, but then also in the body, often there's a faster heartbeat, or the breath becomes shallow, or there's a kind of churning in the stomach and so on. So, we... Uh, can know emotions as uh, particular sets of thoughts that have a bodily component to them. And usually, emotions are relatively short lived, as distinct from what I'm calling moods, which are kind of more of a base level of emotion that sticks around for a longer time and it's a little bit more in the background. So because they're more in the background, they're often hard to see. So we we talk about having a bad mood, for example. But if we pay attention to it, we might start to notice, well, it's kind of a little bit of a flavor of mild depression or overtones of irritation or frustration and so on. Perhaps a little bit of self-judgment thrown in for good measure. And usually a whole pile of resistance. So I think of moods as being sort of uh, compounded and compacted emotions in some way. Whereas uh, what we ordinarily call emotions are just one specific flavor. And then mind states in this category, I include basically any mental experience that doesn't fit under thoughts, emotions or moods. So more of sort of mental qualities, something, for example, alertness. You know, Alertness isn't really an emotion, it's not really a mood, but it is a recognizable, distinct quality. So alertness, dullness, concentration, scatteredness, distractedness, interest, disengagement, those kind of things we can think of as qualities of mind, mind-states. So in the actual Satipatthana Sutta, as I mentioned last night, the instructions for the first three foundations or establishments of mindfulness are simply to know what something is. So we're not getting involved within it, with it in any way, we're not trying to change it in any way, we're simply knowing what's happening in the body, what's happening in the mind, what kind of feeling tones are present, that's all. And it's the same in this third foundation of mindfulness. So I'll read you the um, the actual text in relation to the uh, first set of mind states. It says, "Here, one knows a lustful mind to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. One knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger." to be without anger. One knows a deluded mind to be deluded and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. One knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. And then it goes on for a few more categories. I started with just the beginning because you might have noticed the three root poisons or three root defilements that I mentioned the other night of greed, hatred and delusion. So basically one knows, is there greed in the mind or not? Is there hatred, ill will in the mind or not? Is there delusion in the mind or not? And it's important to recognize a couple of things in there. It doesn't say, know that you are angry know that you are greedy, and so on. The language is very impersonal. It doesn't even say, know that your mind is angry. It simply says, one knows a mind with anger to be with anger, a mind without anger to be without anger. It's very impersonal and objective. And the second part I want to highlight is the or not part. So one knows if anger is present or not. And again, because of this inherent negativity bias, most of us are much more aware of when there is anger and greed and so on as when there is not. So a big part of this training is really starting to notice when the mind is free of those things and to really let oneself appreciate There's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no delusion. So here again in this third establishment, we're cultivating the quality of bare awareness. Simply knowing what's happening in the mind. And that is pretty different from our habitual, ordinary way of relating to our thoughts. For the most part, I think we have two pretty contradictory attitudes to our mental activity. One common tendency is to just dismiss things. Oh, it was was just a thought, no big deal. So, for example, if I'm stewing with resentment towards a co-worker and I'm sitting at my desk just thinking of all the ways that I resent her or whatever... Part of me can say, well, it's just thought, it doesn't matter. But the Buddha was very clear that the quality of our minds is going to influence our actions of body and speech. So the more we're fostering that kind of hindrance of aversion or ill will, we're potentially setting ourselves up for acting in ways that are harmful to the other and to ourselves. So we definitely in these teachings, want to be taking care of our mind states. So I often quote the opening lines of the Dharmapada, which say something like, With our thoughts we make the world speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows. On the other hand, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows. So we want to notice, if we want to be happy, we want to be cultivating the appropriate mind states and releasing the harmful mind states. So the other very common tendency we have is to identify with our thoughts, to take them personally and to believe that they are, that we are our thoughts. It's kind. It's quite fascinating. I think probably many of you have, even on this retreat, had an experience of sitting there, just knowing your experience, things coming and going. Perhaps at times thoughts just coming and going, quite ease, quite at ease, quite natural. And then some random thought comes out of nowhere, and boom, we grab onto it take it to be real, personal, and our whole world changes in a nanosecond. And suddenly we're like lost in misery and self-judgment and shame or rage or whatever it might be. So why did we clamp down on that particular thought? So very interesting to notice which ones hook us out of that endless flow. Which ones do we take personally, to be me, to be mine, to define who I am. Because if we look at it logically or rationally, thoughts are just thoughts. In fact, what are thoughts? They're just firings of neurons in the brain, a momentary pulse of electrical activity. That's all. And yet sometimes we give them this incredible power over our lives. So learning how to work with thoughts in meditation is a very interesting skill. And the first is... Did you have a question? Go ahead. Is that all right? Yeah. It just made me wonder what's the difference between a thought and an insight. A thought and an insight. What's the difference between a thought and an insight? Well, technically an insight is a kind of thinking but it's a kind of thinking that has a wisdom component to it. And it's uh, it's in alignment with reality. So it, it's there's a truth to it. Whereas if we look at our thoughts, <laughs> it's actually pretty humbling how many of them are distorted, deluded, self-referencing, and so on. Does that make sense? So yeah, I think perhaps what you're pointing to is that they can be skillful thoughts. And those are the ones we want to cultivate. And definitely we want to help insights to arise. But for the most part, I'm talking about the ordinary, everyday, blah, 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 blah. It's just kind of going on in the background. So working with thoughts in meditation, as I was just alluding to, the first stage is just to notice that thoughts are just going on. And we don't have to... Um, believes that everything that passes through our mind. So the, in the Buddhist teachings, the mind is the sense door, it's a sense organ. So just as the eyes see, the ears hear, the mind thinks. That's just what it's doing. So contrary to popular opinion, meditation in this tradition is not about trying to stop thinking. That would be Sort of like trying to stop seeing or trying to stop hearing. Not so useful. Yes, Katrina. I'm wondering, insight, maybe it rises out of a meditative, reflective, intuitive, yes. rising up yes. in that way. Whereas I know my thinking is just completely zoom, 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 yes. zoom, zoom. It's very fast. fast. Yeah. So what you were just demonstrating with your body language was you said insights arise and your hands were sort of down more towards your body. And then by contrast, the zoom, zoom, zoom is sort of up in the head. so the insights, at least in my experience, are coming from a more embodied understanding and not so much ordinary intellectual thinking. Yes? In this way... Uh, I I mean, dhammas means the the Buddha's teachings and the truth of how things are. So technically that fourth foundation of dhammas is lists, categories of the Buddha's teachings, like the five hindrances that we started to explore last night. Insights themselves, I don't know where where we might categorize them. I mean, they definitely are in the mind, so you could say they're in the third foundation. And then if they point to a specific wisdom, like an insight into the truth of dukkha, then perhaps that would be in the fourth. These four foundations are not intended to be a comprehensive map of every aspect of our experience. So just be curious and see for yourself where or how it seems to make sense so what we can do with um, thoughts is just you know, Kirsty <laughs> more questions yeah um, I was just thinking about thoughts and how often especially ones that grab us and have emotions that are underneath them yes and at what point do you deal with them as just thoughts and at what point do you kind of go what's the emotion or the feeling that I don't know the right word Yeah, you know anger or yeah. sadness or grief yeah. or whatever it is yeah. and be with the emotion that's fueling the thought. yeah so I was just coming to that the question is about um, the distinction between thoughts and emotions and how the thoughts that we tend to identify with as Kirsty's pointing to often have an emotional component so when do we in a way, direct our attention to the emotion beneath the thought. So I was just going to say um, a little more about that. So the first approach is to see if we can just know thoughts as thoughts. It's okay, mental activity. On the other hand, there are times when certain thoughts just keep coming over and over and over. Very intrusive, powerful, repetitive so once we've recognized something for, I don't know, the 50th time or the 100th time, or if it has a real intensity to it, then we might start to more actively investigate it. So at that point, coming into the body is often a very powerful way of getting a bit more information. And if something is repetitive, it's often because... um The intellect is in some way trying to disconnect from the discomfort of the felt sense of the emotion. So this can be tricky terrain, and I don't want to go into it too much right now. We'll talk about that later. But just to take a bit of time to explore in the body and see if we can recognize that emotion, and sometimes just being able to name it, ah, humiliation, ah, resentment, Oh, loneliness can help the um, dis- the the thinking activity release. So, does that make sense for now? It's really, you know, first stage is always see if you can just know it as it is. If it's really got a hook, then yes, you might explore it. But we wanting to explore it in ways that are more direct and embodied, and not inadvertently intellectualizing or reinforcing the story about it or identifying with it you mean embodied in your body yes, yes. embodied means in, in the body so with emotions um, we can see how they can come and go just like weather you know, we can think of uh, often a metaphor that we use is it's like the sky The awareness can know, like the sky, when a hailstorm is passing through, or thunder, or lightning, or fog, or sunny again. And all of that can simply be known as weather systems coming and going. Likewise, it's possible to know all these moods and emotions and mind states coming and going, coming and going. They come, they arise, they stay for a while and they pass away. Unless we identify with them, clamp down on them, take them personally. I'm so angry. I'm so anxious. I'm so lonely and so on. But remembering the instructions in the sutta, there's no I in there. So we take, in the same way, we try to take the I out of the thinking So a few days ago, we did that exercise of describing our experience in the body without using any personal pronouns. No I, no me, no my, no mine. Likewise with our emotions when we explore them, rather than, I'm so angry. I can't believe they did that. I'm so angry. How could they get away with that? I'm so angry. Rather than that reinforcing the I at the center we can change to, oh, anger being known. Anger is like this. Buzzing thoughts in the mind. Slightly clenched jaw. Heat in the face. Pounding in the chest. Tight fists and so on. So we're taking the I out of the center of it and simply knowing the symptoms with as much kind curiosity as we can. So, that's more than I intended to say for now. Are there any last questions before we do some actual practice? Aidy? Could you talk a bit about the intersection between thoughts and beliefs? Yes. And dealing with that in a meditation sort way? Of, right? Could you give me an example <laughs> of a belief? I mean, like, okay, I might believe I'm a bad person, uh-huh. okay, but that uh-huh. might be a sort of belief I have in my head. And then I might have the thought that comes up, oh, I dropped my cab, oh, I'm really bad, this is really terrible, i just dropped yes. a whole meeting or whatever. I mean, yeah. but that's a thought. Yes. A thought that fuels a belief. Yeah. I would, I'm sort of smiling because I'm trying to find a way of you know, in Buddhism, I think we're basically invited to really question all kinds of beliefs, whatever they are, and see if they're ultimately true or not. It's not like that. can mm-hmm. "Do need to look at your beliefs." And yeah, we re- re- evaluate them. But I mean, like, if if we're trying to like deal with this thought, that yeah. is it is related to the belief. Yes. I mean. How can you effectively deal with their thought before you dealt with the beliefs? Well, it is a kind of a chicken and egg thing, but all of this training is helping us separate out the the component parts of the experience. So you might see the thought, oh, I just dropped that can. I'm so clumsy, or whatever it is. And just hearing that, I'm so clumsy... When the mindfulness is sharp, we hear that tightness, that kind of aggression in the mind. We feel it in the body, and that right there is a feedback signal. Oh, this is dukkha. What's going on here? Oh, that's a very common thought. Oh, I can feel it relating back to this belief that I'm useless or whatever it might be. Oh, that's painful. I think what, is what is truth? How long do you want to sit here? <laughs> the rest of you, I'll come to you in a moment. What is truth? That's what we're exploring here. Basic, But in a nutshell, truth is anything that is healthy, wholesome, skillful, Non harming, right. sukha, ple- um, skillful mental states. Is that a good enough working definition for now? Listen, to to a lunch. <laughs> well, we're going to have an individual meeting pretty soon after this, so maybe we can continue then. Okay? Wyatt? I was just going to add to what you said. I've heard it said that it knows what is true and what isn't more than our brains do so that sometimes if you are in a state of ease or relaxation that that's true that's that's a truth mm-hmm. but if your body gets wound up by a belief and really tight and contracted then you can know that belief is, is probably not true because your body is responding to yes greed, hatred or delusion which is a defilement which clouds the truth yes it's like your body is its own compass yeah body's a very useful resource to see as you're saying if there's tightness contraction, agitation then we're probably a little bit off in some way on the other hand if there's ease and kindness and warmth and openness and so on then probably going in a good direction Ian this is sort of more like a general question about mindfulness but If the purpose of meditation and mindfulness is to become aware, (coughs) more aware of our own experience, Mm where is and to what extent should we consider the experiences of others? So the question is about. So that we don't become too self-absorbed. Yes, the question is about to what extent do we consider others' experiences as well as our own? Well, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the refrain that's repeated over and over and over is. We contemplate internally, we contemplate externally, and we contemplate both internally and externally. So it's an invitation, as you're saying, to keep opening up, to definitely be aware of other beings, other people, the wider context of what we're doing. And that's the protection against this becoming self-absorbed. Okay, I'm going to just let the questions dissolve for now. You will have time. Most of you I'm seeing this morning or tomorrow. If it's a burning question, you can always write me a note. So I'd like to take some time now just to practice with thoughts in meditation. Thank you for listening.